Well, this morning we're going to be beginning the final chapter of our study in the book of Philippians, and that is chapter 4. Let me just read real quick chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, let me just say that uh, as I was sharing with Seth this morning, I believe that verse should be the ending of chapter 3 and not the beginning of chapter 4. Okay? Now, before somebody screams out heresy, um, God did not put the chapters in verses uh, in the Bible. Translators did that. And, uh, and we appreciate it because it certainly helps us uh, to find things a little bit easier. But, but sometimes we don't always quite agree. But I think when you see the break here, I think you'll see how this is dealing um, with Philippians 3, or really the ending of that chapter, okay? But notice here in verse 1, by beginning with the word, therefore, and most of us here know what the word therefore means, right? It means based upon what I just got through saying, okay? And then also in this verse, notice the word that. He says, that is how you should stand firm. Or if you have the New American Standard, it says, in this way, okay? Well, in what way? What is that? And therefore, that, of course, forces us to go back to chapter 3 and to see what he is talking about. So I'm going to kind of do a, uh, what I call a jet tour through chapter 3, just to kind of bring us into where we're at today, remind us of some things we've learned in the past couple of weeks. But dropping back to chapter 3, remember that it was Paul's goal, that it was his pursuit to be like Christ. Okay? He made that very clear. Matter of fact, even dropping back as far as verse 7, Paul just got through talking about everything that he had as a Jew. Okay? If there was anyone who could have boasted about their past, uh, boasted about their heritage, it was the Apostle Paul. Well, what did he say starting there in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7? He says, but whatever was to my profit, and that's everything he just said in verses 3 through 6. Whatever was to my profit, he says, now I consider it a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Matter of fact, I consider them rubbish. That's dung. That's manure. Why? that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's how he used to believe, but he says a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul is simply saying, I left everything behind. It didn't matter how good it made me look. 
okay? Or how admired I was. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. You look at all those things he talked about in those previous verses. He says, nothing compares uh, or as is important to knowing and pursuing Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, he tells us that in verse 10 as well. Look what he says. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. Now, folks, as you know, that became a reality for the Apostle Paul. Okay? I mean, he would know firsthand what it meant to do that, what the, the beatings, the stonings, the hungering, the thirst, the imprisonment. But all those things never detoured Paul because he kept his mind on the goal. He looked toward the end, not how he got there. He just looked toward what he was pursuing. And to prove that, I want you just to keep reading. Look at verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. In other words, I haven't arrived. I'm, this is still my goal. I'm still pursuing it. I'm just not there yet. So he says, what do I do? He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. In other words, he's saying he has made it his life's desire to be what God wants him to be. God had a plan for Paul, and Paul says, I want to fulfill that plan. Okay? Keep reading, verse 14. I'm sorry, go to verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but he says one thing I do. He says, you know what I do? I forget what is behind. I forget my past. I forget what I believed before. I forget how I looked, how I was admired and he says, I strain towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which Christ Jesus has called me heaven, or be heavenward in Christ Jesus. That goal there that he mentions is, as I mentioned prior, Christ's likeness. And when Paul says he presses on, Okay, that means he's not, he's not stopping. Remember, this is a present tense. It is a continuous effort. I keep going, is what he's saying. It's like I've said before, there is no uh, spiritual retirement, right? I, I press on, I keep pressing on, I continue to press on, I never stop pressing on, period. That's kind of how he looks at that, okay? We don't just in life stop or put a hold on God's sanctification process. That's a no-no. And therefore he says in verse 15, all of us who are mature, he says, all of you who are mature should take such a view of this. Okay, in other words, he says if you're a mature Christian, you should agree with everything that I just said. Okay, everything we just looked at, Paul is saying, if, if you're a mature Christian, you would agree with everything that I just got through talking about. Okay? You should share with me, if you will, in my pursuit of Christ's likeness. You should participate with me as I press on towards the goal to win the prize. 
You should do just what I'm doing, you see. You might put it this way. There should never be satisfaction in nominal Christianity. Let me say that again. There should never be satisfaction in nominal Christianity. When it comes to your spiritual life, when it comes to your walk with Christ, you are never to be a minimalist. So much so, Paul says in verse 17, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. And so outside of the spiritual growth that you and I received, are blessed with as we, as we study the Word of God and certainly as we spend time in prayer, Paul says a great way to move forward, a great way to mature as we continue, right, we press on, is to literally watch other faithful believers. Let them be an example to how one should live. Folks, learning from the lives of other believers can literally change a life. As we study the Word of God, and, but then sometimes when we see someone going through one of those trials, going through difficulty, going through financial hardship, being persecuted fr from within or without, being gossiped about, all the things that can happen when you see that person and you see how they handle it in a godly, biblical fashion, that will truly make an impression upon you. It, it shows you, it, 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 there's somebody there living out Scripture. Okay? And that not only teaches you, it teaches us, but it encourages us to do the very same thing. Sometimes as we see and read and study the Word of God, but yet when we see that example, we see it right in front of our eyes from a person, a family member, a husband, a wife, whomever. And that makes an impression upon our hearts. Now that being said, Paul also wants you to know, don't just follow anybody. Don't just see an example and follow it. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says this right after that. and He says, For as I have told you before, and now I say it again, even with tears, many, there's that word again, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, or their God is their appetite. And their glory is in their shame. That means their glory, uh, 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 what they brag about, what they boast about, is what they should be sh ashamed of. But they do just the opposite. He says their mind is on earthly things. Listen, folks, it is no different then as it is today. There are enough uninformed, gullible Christians out there who follow people, who, who listen to what they say, who read their books, who uh, listen to their blogs, and so on and so forth, all because that person just says or claims to be a Christian, as 80% of America does, which is obviously bogus. Okay? It's as if to say, well, as long as they say it, that's good enough for me. And that's where most Christians are. Well, they said they're Christians. 
Well, okay, <laughs> people say a lot of things, right? But like the church in Philippi, Paul says many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Folks, we don't follow what somebody claims. We are to follow a godly example. A person's, a person's life will give evidence to what they claim. Okay? That's what we have to remember. As, as, uh, as Paul told Pi, uh, Titus in chapter 1, verse 16, you can claim to know God, but by your actions you can deny Him. You can speak it and say it all you want, but by your actions you will deny Him. In other words, it's worthless. It's just, it's just verbiage. Everybody says that. Well, I was born up in a Christian home. That doesn't make you born again. Well, I know the story of Noah. Okay, good for you. And <laughs> you keep going on and on and on. Say, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You'll know somebody by the love that they have. Who, who do they love? Why do they love it? Is it God? Is it Christ? Is it his word? Was it everything the world has to offer? And that's where the claim comes in, but the life is something completely different. But the point here that Paul is getting at is simple. These people are to be avoided, not imitated. Avoid them. And then lastly, in contrast to those people, verses 20 and 21, he says, but our citizenship, so there's the contrast, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. And so you might say, yes, we are in this world, but we are not to live like it. We are not to act like it. Because, as he says here, our real home is where? In heaven, he says. He says it's in heaven. And that's the thing that we must truly think about. Just because we're here on this earth temporarily does not mean that we should involve ourselves in, in this world, in these worldly festivities. We, as believers in Christ, hold a different world view. We look at things differently. Spiritually speaking, we don't belong here. We don't speak the language that they speak. We don't desire the same things they desire. We don't worship and have all these many, many gods, if you will, that they do. It's not about us. As I mentioned last time, that old hymn, right? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. We have eternity waiting for us one day in heaven, not because of our goodness, but because of Christ. We're going to be here 70, 80 years. We're just passing through. We got a long way to go, but it won't be on this, uh, this world anymore and dealing with its sin. Well, after quickly going through that, yeah, that was pretty quick, by the way. That was 10 minutes. That's pretty good. Let's once again now read chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, 
Now, I hope you get a bunch of things going through your mind because now you know what therefore means. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, what does he say? He says that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. It's like he reads, it's like he writes chapter three and says, now that is how you do it. That's kind of his whole point, which is why I say it really belongs at the end of that chapter. Okay? But I hope the verse actually makes more sense. When I was talking earlier to Seth, when you first grab it, if you're going to just do one Sunday school lesson, you're like, where does that, how, what? How does that just fit in starting at chapter four? But I hope it makes more sense to you now that we reviewed chapter three. Uh, and so after Paul has given all of that godly advice, including his own example in his own life, pushing them to, to never stop pursuing Christ, he says, he calls them brothers. He then says, whom I love and I long for. And then one more, he says, my joy and my crown. Folks, I I don't think that there's any question that Paul truly did love these people. They were not just Christian pen pals where he said, gee, I hope you're doing well. He truly cared, as we just read, he truly cared for their spiritual welfare. Okay, And so with that being said, after they're coming to faith in Christ, now they're a part of the church. Paul knew, as good as anybody, that wasn't always easy. The trials of the Christian, the... Uh, the persecution, the tribulation, the world at every turn standing opposed to us. Satan, 1 Peter 5.8, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And even our own struggle, this constant battle from within, battling our own flesh, our own sin nature. Folks, when you love someone as much as Paul loved them, the church, knowing as believers of what they were going to go through, now that they've come to faith in Christ, now that they have turned from this world, turned to him, a part of the church, they know there's going to be opposition, right? Knowing all this, you can see why Paul, and hopefully if we're in that situation, us as well, would want to help them, would want to prepare them, would want to protect them. And therefore, what did Paul do? He taught them. He teaches them. As Paul just did, of course, in that previous chapter, didn't he? Paul started by sharing his own life. He used his own life as an example He said in that text that no matter what the world may offer him, no matter the praise that he may get from people looking at him when he was a Jew and all these things that he had to to brag about, Paul said about himself, what? He says, that's all rubbish. That's all manure compared to Christ. In other words, when when he draws these people to Christ, shares the gospel, they come to faith in him, he knows there's a tough road ahead. 
but he wants to prepare them. But he says, everything you had, everything you gave up, like I did, it's nothing. It's manure compared to what you have now. He says, compared to Christ. Paul said in chapter 3, I want to know Christ in every way possible. And literally, until I reach that point, what do I do? I press on, right? I continue. I keep pressing on. I move forward. I keep advancing, he's saying, in my endeavor. And there's no slowing down. That's a point that we have to remember. We don't just get to a point in our spiritual life or, or our, the number of years we've been on this earth and say, ah, you know, right? We don't do that. We never come to a place in our walk with Christ where we say, eh, that's good enough. I'm at a good enough place in my life. It's all good. I'm sure God's proud of me and call it a day. He keeps pressing on. Because unless you think you've reached the goal, I haven't. And trust me, you haven't either. We press on towards the goal. Folks, Paul put Jesus Christ first. So much so, as you know, he was confident enough. Ask yourself if you're this confident. He was confident enough to tell the church, follow me, follow my example. You know, would you want somebody following you around for a week with a video camera at everything you've done, everything you've said, every time you rolled your eyes or whatever? Most of us would go, well, uh, not all the time. <laughs> but Paul said, you know, you, you can follow me. Putting all this together, folks, he was able to say in the second half of verse 1, that is how you should stand firm. Folks, Paul wanted spiritual stability in the church. Okay? A constancy, a steadfast in the lives of these believers. Otherwise, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, through the trials, through the persecution, through the tribulation, you're going to get crushed. In other words, it's going to be really difficult. Paul knows that. He teaches them. He wants what is best for them. He wants them stable in their walk with Christ. And that's why he ended verse 1 with those words, stand firm. Or as I would say, he ended chapter 3 <laughs> with those words, stand firm. In case you don't remember, that's the words that Paul used in Ephesians 6, right? Talking about that battle that we have in this world, right? The body of Christ, the armor of God, we're fighting the enemy. He said in those verses, take your stand. He then said, stand your ground. And then finally he said what he says here, and that is, stand firm. Stand firm. Now, and taking everything we just saw from chapter 3 as well as chapter 4, verse 1, let's carry that into the next couple of verses and recognize that there are a couple of people here in the church of Philippi, uh, let's just say who were not doing what Paul just saying. They were really no help at all, to be honest with you. But let's read about that in verses 2 and 3. He says, I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women 
who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You can see why I believe chapter 4 begins right there. Folks, everything that I had discussed this morning since I began this sermon should be applied on an individual basis. And what I mean by that is every single Christian, that's each one of us on an individual basis, should take to heart what Paul just got through saying. All of us should try and move and press on in that direction, spiritually speaking, taking his advice, which we know is the word of God, but taking that advice, pressing on, never giving up, going toward the goal. But with that being said, we do not want to diminish the importance of the body of Christ, the church as a whole, and the impact that it can have on each and every one of us. It's been said that the church, meaning the local church, the church will never go beyond the people that attend it. The people will never go beyond the church that it attends. Catch that? It goes both ways. Much growth, much biblical application can happen in the gathering of believers. Okay? This is a place where true fellowship, true communion should take place. We should support one another, sometimes caring for one another, maybe even meeting a financial need. And at times, maybe even holding each other accountable. As I said it a minute ago, this brings about spiritual stability. Spiritual stability. But on the flip side of that, if you're not part of a local church and therefore experiencing the support of other believers, other Christians, you will very likely be spiritually unstable. Matter of fact, I can just about guarantee that. In other words, folks, the body of Christ, the local church, is that important? It really is. Well, Darren, you know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. How many times have you heard that? Yeah, but if you are a Christian, you will be there. I mean, poke on some people, obviously not you, because you're here. But it's true. And so in moving forward, you might even say a point of application... Verses 2 and 3 tells us an individual problem that seemingly is affecting the church. Okay? Remember, folks, this is an open letter to the church in Philippi. And yet, reading here in verse 2, he throws out a couple of names. Did you notice that? This is an open letter to the church, but yet he throws out a couple of names. Let's see what Paul says one more time. In verse 2, I plead with Eodia, I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Now for Paul to use the word plead, or as other translations, actually I think all four of the major translations have four different words. They use the word plead, urge, entreat, implore, I'm sure everybody in here has probably one of those. 
using those words, this is not a, a, a minor disagreement between two people. Number one, Paul felt he had to put that in a letter, okay? And even mentioning their names, all right? That'd be a bummer. Someone wrote a letter to the Discover Church, right? And, and would you tell Z and Jessica, uh, for those of you listening on the radio, there are no Z and Jessica. I was just kidding. And <laughs> you'd be kind of a bummer to have your name called out like that, right? But he mentions their names. Secondly, based on verses 2 and 3, he's now going to involve somebody else in the church, right? Paul is moving on this, folks, because there's always a concern that this kind of stuff can spread. And we all know that. Now, as you can see, Paul does not discuss the issue, okay? Nor do we know what the disagreement was. And Paul does not even take sides. He doesn't take sides. Therefore, it's probably, uh, it's probably not a serious issue of right and wrong, as if one part is a sin and the other one is not. It's probably not that issue. I'm sure if it was, Paul probably would have said something that is wrong, that is sinful, that is opposed to God. But what he simply does is just encourage reconciliation. He encourages reconciliation. And this is an important point, folks, for every one of us to learn. If you ever have two people that you know, maybe in a church, maybe at work, whomever, who are in some kind of squabble where, once again, it might not be a right or a wrong. It might not be a biblical issue. Even if you happen to agree with one of them over the other, the point is it's not necessary to give your two cents. Maybe on a biblical issue, absolutely, you want to use the Word of God. But on a non-biblical issue, which sadly many churches split over these days, you don't need to give your two cents. Your goal is to resolve the issue, right? Your goal is to bring forth unity between two people with differing views. Now, folks, I know that, that here in verses 2 and 3, it might not seem like a big to-do, okay? Especially since he's only, he's only bringing it up for two verses, right? But as many of you know, disunity in the local church can be destructive. Not a bummer. Destructive, okay? I cannot... Er, it can not only ruin a biblically sound church, a doctrinally sound church, but it can destroy what used to be friendships. It can therefore destroy the church's testimony. That's why if you actually drop back to verse, or chapter 2, I should say, here in Philippians, you're going to see that Paul has already brought up this issue of unity. Here in chapter 2, the first four verses, because, yep, this can be a problem. Paul says, and matter of fact, he uses the word if here many times, okay? Uh, in the Greek, this is a fulfilled condition, meaning it should be translated since. In other words, it's, already, it's, it's, it's a done deal. It's a fulfilled condition. So it's not if, it's since, okay? So since you have any encouragement 
from being united with Christ, since you have comfort from his love, since you have fellowship with the Spirit and tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. How do you do that, Darren? Well, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Folks, Paul talked about that, which we obviously already went through. But Paul went through this, discussed this issue, because there was trouble on the home front. He didn't, he didn't write himself a note to say, hey, throw this out there in case anything ever happens. That usually doesn't happen in Scripture. It's reactionary. Because something is going on, that's why Paul needs to say these things. Okay? And if he had to point out two people here in chapter 4, it's a reminder that this kind of stuff can spread and it can destroy a church spiritually by causing discord, by causing disharmony, conflict, division. I'm sure I know that some of you, I know some of the folks who aren't here today, I know you have seen, if not actually been involved in a church split and that it's been really, really sad at what has taken place. The people you fellowship with, the people that you saw, the people that you might think of right now sitting next to or you can see their faces, all of a sudden, they're completely different. They act different. They are immature. They say things they have never said before. You want to see the, the sin nature get drawn out. It's a real, real sad situation when that kind of stuff happens. So what Paul asks here in verse 2 is that these two women agree with each other in the Lord. Now when he uses the word agree, Right? He says, agree with each other. Bear in mind, this is one of, those, one of those Greek words that can be translated in many different English words. Okay? In other words, it's usually the context that will help you translate that. Okay? The literal meaning is to have understanding. Okay? You would, might say to have understanding with one another. To have understanding with one another. Now, folks, the reason I tell you this is because the word agree, agree with each other, can come across as you cannot disagree. That's how sometimes, if you think about that, you both have to think this, which is not what he's saying. As you know, Christians can disagree on some things and still be good friends. Husbands and wives disagree on things without getting into all kinds of ugly things. Now, the New American Standard says to live in harmony with each other. Now, I like that because it, it, it doesn't mean that these two women must be exactly the same way. It's like I said earlier, unless something is sinful or unless it flies in the face of biblical truth, it's okay to, we all know it, Agree to disagree. Sometimes it's okay 
to agree to disagree. Okay? There doesn't have to be backbiting. There doesn't have to be division, disunity, or tension. How many of you have walked into a church or a, a Sunday school class, maybe your place of work, where you just see a somebody and all of a sudden, there goes the tension. Yeah, you've been there? What a worse place to walk into a place of worship than that be taking place. I mean, we all have opinions, myself included, but I'm going, I, I want to go, what are you, 12? Really? You can't walk into a place of worship? Without that kind of stuff? Seriously? I think this is why Paul adds those last three words, in the Lord. Be in harmony, be in agree with, in the Lord. Folks, when people are believers, as they are part of the body of Christ, they're unified in biblical truth, you do what Paul is asking here because the Lord is the reason. Okay? Because you love and respect him, you live in harmony. Oh, if you were cut loose in your sin nature, you might have the attitude. You might start smacking off and saying stupid things you'll regret. But you're going, you know what? Because my life is in Christ, because I live for him and I do this because I want to honor him, you don't. That's what it is to be in, in the Lord. You respond in him. Every time, otherwise, every time something happened in this life, can you imagine that Christians would be just like non-Christians? Cussing somebody out, calling them names, whatever. We don't do those things because we honor the Lord and who we are. And it goes no different when it comes to these relationships. See, we do so in the Lord. You bury your differences because your affection is for Christ. And we've all heard the stories, and sadly they're true. Some people have um, split a church over the color of the paint. Maybe how many cribs to put in the nursery. Really? You can't, you, you can't disagree on those kind of issues? I mean, you can walk away still believing you're right. <laughs> I do that all the time. But you don't have to sit here and argue about it or split the church about it, or have a riff, or now have tension. Okay, maybe there were people who don't want these, uh, these tables. All right, you have every right to believe that. But they're there anyway. It is what it is. You don't just come in here and go, oh, stupid table, I can't believe. You don't start going off on the table, or the person who bought them. Well, unfortunately, folks, what we see here in our text, everything didn't quite happen the way that Paul wanted it to. There was tension. There, there was division between Eodia and Syntyche. They have not done what we've just talked about. They haven't done that. They have allowed their sinful attitudes to win the day. And when that happens, sometimes other people in the church need to get involved or somebody needs to step in, okay? And this is what Paul is doing right here. They have not done what Paul had wished or would hoped that would happen in a Christian fellowship. And so he says in verse 3, he says, Yes, 
And I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so the person that Paul seeks help from, somebody obviously a part of the Philippian church, is called a loyal yoke fellow. Most other translations use the word true companion. Okay? But as you might guess, as you think about the word yoke, many of you know what a yoke is. But it, it comes off of that word. That's why he calls it a yoke fellow. It literally means a crossbar tied to a pole with a couple different collars on it where you would put two oxen, which most of us know as a yoke. These two oxen work together. They work as one, right? They just have double the power. But they're unified in what they're doing. They're going to pull this cart. They can't, one can't go faster than the other, and so on and so forth. Now, because this word is singular in the Greek, he's only talking about one person, not a group. This isn't his Sunday school class or anything of that nature. Just one person. But in that one person thinking about being yoked together, you're obviously finding someone in whom Paul particularly has a close relationship. Obviously, this is somebody who Paul feels united with. Someone that he trusts. Someone who, spiritually speaking, uh, was mature enough where Paul felt that, that he can count on him to work with these women and bring them back to not just a fellowship with each other, but a fellowship with the Lord. And I threw that in there because you, you, you cannot be out of fellowship, if you will, using those words, with people and, and somehow be in fellowship with the Lord. Okay? Now, there are times I get where you've done everything you can to reconcile that relationship. And maybe in that situation, you are right with God. You've tried to fix that. You've tried. You've humbled yourself. You've apologized. You've whatever. But unfortunately, it's still not resolved due to the other party. That can certainly happen. But many times when there's attitudes like that and heads are budding over things that are not that big of a deal, there's, there's an issue going on inside with the Lord as well. And as you can see from the rest of this verse, the problem wasn't simply just two unknown women. So I think this is what caused it to be a little bigger stink. It wasn't just two women who were caught in a bad conversation in the ladies' room. But these are women who Paul knew because he says, they had contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. Okay? And then he mentioned Clement and some of the others who were there with them. You know, if you will, there's a group of us working together. Okay? Now, in my opinion, I think this made things worse because Paul knew that these women were mature enough to have worked with him, mature enough to have gone out with others throughout the city of Philippi and share the gospel. They were concerned with other people's lives enough to the fact that they would share Jesus with them. But yet, look at what's happening between them too. It's hard, it's hard, and you know this, it's hard to see two uh, seemingly faithful women, and this could obviously be men as well, but it's hard to see two seemingly faithful women at a point of disagreement with each other that you have to ask, 
a mature believer to step in. It's hard to see that. It's hard to be involved in that. It's, it's a bummer. It's discouraging. It's sad and all those other words that go along with it. But it's important, folks, that we do understand that even the most mature, generally faithful people, committed people, can become inwardly focused. Nobody's perfect, if you want to use that old cliché. But it's true. Nobody is perfect. Nobody's sinless. Nobody can just do everything flawlessly in this world. But it's sad when they become so inwardly focused that this happens in the church. They're obviously not being faithful to the Lord, and they're not being diligent to maintain the unity of the body. Once again, even if it's outside these walls, we're, we're, we're all a part of the body of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We gather together, we worship together, we study together, we laugh, we eat together. I mean, all those things, and all of a sudden, some little bickering thing comes along, and you're like, you can't figure this out between you two? You, 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 do you have to have another Christian come in to somehow work it out? It happens, but I don't just want to say, eh, it happens, because it really shouldn't. It should not be the norm. But let me just say, I'll, I'll, I will tell you this right now, it is the norm in a lot of churches. That's a fact. A lot. Many times the congregation does not know what's happening. It may be going on behind the scenes. You know, some of the elders or deacons or pastors or whoever might be involved in a situation. When you're literally, literally just sitting here, you know, you're shaking your head. Because you know these people. You know those people. And you're going, what, why can't you figure this out? This is not some debate over the deity of Jesus Christ. The separation of the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the cults. This is, you know, geez, we, we cooked spaghetti two weeks ago. We can't do it again. It's always something like that. I don't like the curriculum you bought for the kids. Well, you're not involved, and that's not your decision. You have to trust those who are involved in leadership. There's a million things we can sit here and, and talk about, but I think it's a great reminder to all of us that these little things can happen. They've happened in this church. There was someone, a couple, who had to leave the church, even though I sat down with them in their home and met with them, discussed it simply, easily. To me, it was just, here's what you need to do. And I think it'll be fine. Everything's going to be good. I've talked to the other person already as well. You know, nope, won't do it. Really? You, you won't do that? No, I'm just going to leave. Oh, well, that really works things out. Because so, to so many people, it just works things out when you just go to a different church. See, that wasn't as easy back here in Scripture. But today, it's like, well, I got a divorce from my wife because uh, she burnt my toast. But uh, I'm just going to, you know what, I'm just going to go to the church down the street. They don't know I got a divorce with my wife for that reason. I'll just start all over again. And sadly, we're in that kind of a situation today where you can just avoid it all in your own mind, but you're never getting things right in your own heart. So keep these things in mind as we look at it. Obviously, there are, there are good times to discuss things biblically, and that's a good time to ask somebody who's more mature in their knowledge and of Scripture to see what's going on, look at the context, probably have a good time studying that out. But many times, you know, there are people in here who disagree with me, which God knows, I don't know why. 
but they do. And I usually joke about it, and I said, well, you can be wrong all you want. But I try to bring a little levity into it for the sake of, there's no, I mean, okay, we disagree. I shouldn't have wore this shirt today. Okay? Thanks to David, he understands. But those kind of things, laughable things, that we can laugh at, that other two people are at each other's throats. Let's not be one of them. Let's understand what we've learned from chapter 3. Let's continue to press on toward the goal to win the prize. We don't stop pursuing that relationship with the Lord, being like Him. And if you think about it, always go back to Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about the unity in the church. And it talks about it's usually a selfish, a selfishness issue. Don't do anything with selfish ambition, vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Yeah, I know that's hard. I get it. I'm, I'm human too. But think about that because it's a very, very sad thing. It really, really is when you see that happen in the church. We don't know what happened here. We don't know the end result with these two women, but many of us do know the end results that have happened in our lives that we don't ever want to see again. So it's a great reminder for all of us here as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that we can go through this text this morning, and if anything, it's a great reminder of what we uh, saw in chapter 3 as we were encouraged, challenged to move forward in our walk, to set aside everything in the past, to say, you know what, I don't want, I don't want to be that way. I want to move forward in Christ. I want to strain toward what is ahead. I have a goal, and that goal is what you want me to be. And Lord, outside of that, we know if we let that go, if we don't have that goal, if we, if we allow ourselves to be of this world like those other people were, you know, we might be that person who's bickering with another Christian brother and sister. We might be the person who says, no, I'm not wrong. That's your problem. You're, you have to deal with that issue. Lord, when in reality, two mature believers should be able to work these things out. Lord, we've all seen... Uh, sadly, a devastation of relationships, family members, church members over these kinds of things. And you just sit here and you absolutely want to shake your head over a place that was doctrinally sound, a great place to worship, just literally falls apart because of our pride over something like that. God, help us to never be a part of that, to always, if, there is, if there's something ever coming up, even if it's, it's, it's shocking to us, we had no idea what help us to deal with it properly, to handle it as a mature believer would and, and bring back unity to the people as well as to the church. And we'll give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.